Welcome to the RSP Cast Film and Theory. I'm Matt Waldman. Joining me, as always, is Adam Harstead. And today we're going to talk a little bit about um, a feature that Adam penned about the fox and the hedgehog and, and what, what that really entails for us as uh, fantasy GMs. Um, we'll also look at maybe what, if anything, has changed our mind or, um, you know, about this particular season when it comes to players, units, teams, fantasy approaches. Um, and then also we'll talk about, um, you know, what happens if you have a team right now that is struggling to the point that just small tweaks to your lineup changes. Maybe you've had some bad lineup decisions or you just need to, you know, you're one or two players away from being able to make a, a difference and you feel like that you're you're close but just haven't had a good record, but you're scoring well. What if you're not in any of those situations? What if your team just sucks right now? And instead of giving up, what are some things that you can do to kind of make it interesting and, and potentially help yourself become competitive, maybe even surprisingly so? So, Adam, you know, thanks again for, for joining us as always. And tell us a little bit about, you know, you have this really, I really enjoy your dynasty in theory pieces that you do and you know late last month you did one on foxes and hedgehogs and i'd like for you to you know share with folks you know the the gist of this feature and 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 in any detail that you'd like to go yeah i always say i'm kind of surprised football guys lets me do stuff like this because <laughs> i mean i think if you read it it's not like Calling it fantasy analysis is a little bit of a stretch, but they've kind of given me carte blanche to, you know, I, I have the the stuff that's actually useful to people that I do every week. And then at the end of the week, they're like, go nuts, write about whatever you want. Um, and sometimes I take liberties with that. And I, I love that they let me take such liberties with that. But uh, the piece owes to like a 2000 plus year old uh, scrap of poetry, ancient Greek poetry. We don't have the entire poem, only fragments of it survive. Um, but the famous line uh, by a guy named Archilochus is, a fox knows many things, but a hedgehog knows one big thing. Um, so if you're familiar with the website 538, um, you might have noticed that their logo is a fox. And that comes from this scrap of poetry that um, most political prognosticators at that time were hedgehogs. They knew one big thing, and that one big thing was politics. And that was their job. That was their life. They followed politics. They followed the horse race. They had their theories of everything. 538 was started by Nate Silver, who actually got into modeling as a it for fantasy baseball. He created a fantasy baseball projection system um, called Pakoda. Uh, it was wildly successful, much better than than most of the models that were out there at the time. And he was kind of bored, um, and he is a committed generalist. You know, he's more into the, the statistical problem solving than he is the underlying subject matter. So he's like, hey, let's try my hand at political forecasting, um, you know, as one does. And in 2008, he achieved notoriety for correctly predicting all 50 out of 50 states in the presidential election. Um, he was the biggest name to do so uh, in 2012. I think he got 49 out of 50. Um, and he said his success is because he wasn't bogged down in all of this minutia of politics, this day-to-day, -day, like the horse race. He, he knows a little bit about a lot of stuff, 
Um, and he's a committed generalist and he has all this experience working with like baseball numbers and that helps him understand just how random production is from one sample to the other and he understands like error rates and polling bias and because he had that big picture view he was able to see the entire big picture better than the people who are hyper focused on one aspect or another um so his contention is that it's better to be a fox than to be a hedgehog um, and there's other famous examples of this. Um, I don't know if our listeners are familiar with the saying uh, Maslow's hammer, uh, which is this saying that if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so you get people like, like you see it a lot in fantasy analysis. Somebody learns how to run a linear regression. And that's a cool and powerful tool. You can do some interesting stuff with it. I use it a lot because it's, it's easy. Like it kind of sits in that sweet spot where it's telling stuff that's not apparent not readily apparent, but also it's like easy enough for me to do in five minutes in Google Sheets. But like a lot of people will learn linear regression and then they will just linearly regress everything. And there's times when it's not an appropriate tool. There's relationships that aren't linear. Um, you need some underlying theory of the relationship before the like there's you can you can run a regression and you'll see that um, ice cream sales per month correlate very strongly with number of drownings per month. And you could look at that correlation and say, oh, eating ice cream causes people to drown. No, the reality is people swim a lot in summer when the weather's nice. People eat ice cream a lot in the summer when the weather's nice. There's a, there's a third variable that's explaining both of these two. And if you're not careful, you're finding spurious relationships, things that are not real relationships. So it's important to have the theory. But again, you, you learn this cool tool, you learn linear regression. It's very easy. You just plug data into a spreadsheet and you put like equal corel open parentheses, the data, close parentheses, and you've done analysis. And so that's your hammer and everything starts looking like a nail. Everything starts looking like something that you can just apply your hand to. Or um, six there foot was X wide receivers weighing over right. 210 pounds. Right, yeah. exactly. That's a perfect example of that, that, that um, the, the regression said this, so therefore it must be true. Um, there's an earlier formulation that I like, it's called the law of the instrument. And that's like, if you, a young child, a hammer, he will quickly discover that everything he comes across needs a pounding. Um, and I have, it, that always appeals to me because we have drumsticks in the house and periodically I have to hide them because if the kids find the drumsticks, everything in the house becomes a drum. Um, so that's like Maslow's hammer, the law of the instrument. These are all arguments against being a hedgehog, against being someone with one big tool. But the original scrap of poetry is not saying it's bad to be a hedgehog. And there have been various points in history where um, it's actually been viewed as good to be a hedgehog. Uh, Thomas Aquinas once said, I fear the man of one book, which a lot of people think is an argument in favor of foxes that like, oh, this one guy read Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, and now he sees the entire world through the lens of objectivism. He's a classic hedgehog. He doesn't understand the nuance. Um, but Aquinas actually meant he feared the person who, who studied one thing with such intensive focus that he had devoted his entire life to it. Like, how do you debate somebody like that? He feared debating and arguing against that person. Um, so... I was thinking about it and and for the longest time I've adopted the 538 view that it's good to be a committed generalist and I think it shows in my work in dynasty leagues I'm very much 
a generalist and I write about and football guys gives me broad leeway to write about anything. And I'll write about like the history of currency in ancient Mesopotamia and how that applies to your rookie drafts <laughs> and things like that. And it's fun for me. And I think that it's, it's a large part of how I play dynasty. And I think it's a large part of what makes me good as a player. So I've always thought Fox, good hedgehog, bad. And I started writing this argumentative piece where I'm going to say, Fox good, hedgehog bad. Very clear goal in my mind. I, I know exactly what the piece is going to look like. And as I'm writing it and writing it and writing it, I realize I'm not really trying to persuade the reader so much as I'm trying to persuade myself. Yeah. Because I say I'm a Fox and Dynasty, but the way I play redraft, it's pure, pure hedgehog. I have one big idea, and that's that the ADP market is pretty efficient. So if you can get the same players everyone else is getting at a later price than they're getting, you're going you're gonna to do good. And I've been following that one big insight for eight or 10 years now, and I've been tremendously successful with it. Um, and so I'm getting into it and I'm like, you know, it, no, it's not bad to be a hedgehog. I think you are the quintessential dynasty hedgehog. Your one big idea is I'm going to scout these players. I'm going to find out who's good and why, and I'm going to roster the good players and not the bad players. And you are tremendously successful in dynasty as well. Uh, where that's kind of the, What's fun about this show, and I'm glad you brought this up because I was thinking about you as I was writing this. I was we, I, I was laughing because I was looking in the mirror and going, I need to shave or else I'm going to, I can maybe disguise a myself a little there. bit, but I'm feeling a little, yeah. little hedgehoggy right now when I was reading that. We're, we're, I think, the classic odd couple fox and hedgehog pairing, <laughs> which works because yeah. the truth is it's it's not better to be one or the other. There's a reason why... The poem is, you know, the, the fox knows many things, the hedgehog knows one big thing, and yeah. that's bad, yeah. right? It, there's, there's no value judgment there. It's just no. an observation about how the world works. And if you get your one big idea in Dynasty and it works, that's awesome. You can, you can be tremendously successful with one quality insight. That's all you need. Um, I still am going to continue being a Fox in Dynasty because it's fun for me. I mean, I think that's largely an aesthetic preference now. I've kind of argued myself out of the position I was trying to argue other people into. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, as I always say, fantasy football is a hobby. It's supposed to be fun. Do the thing that's fun for you. Yeah. I think it's a great... I thought it was a great piece and I enjoyed it a lot, you know. And yeah, I mean, it's funny because... I, there are so many other things in life where I was, I have definitely been a Fox, but at some point I just decided that in this particular area, I thought, yeah, I, you know, I'm intrigued enough that I want to, I'm tired of being a Fox. Like that, that was kind of where uh, around my mid thirties, I was like, I'm tired of being a Fox about everything. I want to know what it's like to be a hedgehog in something. Like, and I want to go down that road. And now I'm at a point where I'd like to, with certain things, I would like to be a Fox in terms of dynasty. Um, but I've committed so hard to, to what I've done and I have to continue to stay committed to it, to, to get the work done that I really don't have the time or opportunity to, to explore in another area, at least in that setting, you know, it's kind of more like my schedule is set for me and it's like, you know, I've got to dig that tunnel and I, <laughs> you know, or whatever it is that they, wherever they stay, you know, whatever their nest and build and build and fix and, you know, tweak everything. And it's just kind of like that as a result, my schedule's kind of made for me in that regard. And there's times that I miss, I miss that, but it's, um, but I find that, 
I've seen that also extend to music. You know, I, I, I was asking my, one of my teachers the other day, maybe about a month ago, um, you know, we're about, you transcribe solos to learn, you know, jazz, like you're, you, what, one of the things that they try to do to help you learn the language is you listen to something by ear, you try and, you know, you focus on learning to sing it, then try and learn how to play it and get the notes right, get the rhythms right, get the phrasing right, get all the little nuance and, and just dig into every little thing to where you can sound exactly like the way they sounded. And it takes, you know, it takes a lot of time to do. And it's one of those things where, you know, you can go on to YouTube as a, an aspiring musician and find all sorts of transcriptions. There's books on, of transcriptions where they've written down all the notes and you can play along with it and you can get some value out of that. But if you really want to like, to your point about knowing that one big thing and the danger that the day, you know, the knowledge that person has, you know, I could probably take a book of Charlie Parker solos and play along with all of them and learn how to play all of them. And that's great. But, and I'd done that in the past, you know, but there's a difference between going, I'm not looking at the book. I'm going to listen to the record and I'm going to learn to sing it. I'm going to learn just this one solo. I'm going to learn how to sing it. I'm going to learn how to play it. Then I'm going to go back. I'm going to write it down based on what I heard. Then I'm going to go back. And after that, I'm going to talk about the intervallic relationships between the notes. So I'm going to memorize. It's not G to B flat. I'm going to remember that it's the root to the flat third, you know, to the, you know, to the fifth, to the flat 13, you know, all these things so that you remember all of that. And then I'm going to learn it in all 12 keys or as many keys as I possibly can learn it. Um, and then I'm going to delve into, and then I'm going to analyze it some more. And like, at this point, you can see that like, what ends up happening though, is that my ears gotten a lot better. You know, I understand the theory of where this goes and I can apply it in a variety of settings. And well, so my teacher was talking about that cause he's having me learn a Miles Davis solo on the bass, a trumpet solo on, on the bass and just said, we're going to spend a lot of time on this. Like we're going to really dig in this because really at the end of the day, he talked about a couple of musicians that I, I've certainly have always revered. And he said, their take has always been, don't try and learn as many solos as possible. Really, you probably only need to learn about five to seven solos. You only need to learn like just with different types of tunes. And so there's a generalist in there. There's a fox in that. But in a sense, really what they're saying is that if you learn a handful of things and really learn it at great depth, you're going to be able to play any, you know, play with anybody in this setting as opposed to knowing, having a big notebook filled with everything. And I think that that's, kind of the value of you know the opposite side of that spectrum is that you know for me i you know and i can say this I, because i know that i'm certainly wrong a lot but i'm right enough to look at things now as with rookies and go i set adp with rookies i'm one of the people that sets adp with rookies I know that. I know that in dynasty leagues. I've, I've people tell me who with the sites, and I know based on customer feedback, they're like, I, you know, I know that I'm gonna, you know, when I come out and say 
I like Anthony Richardson more than most, that ADP is going to go up. You know, I know that if I, you know, if I, if I don't like Zach Wilson, then it probably will drop a little bit, you know, things like that. So it's knowing that it's kind of like, okay, so now I understand that, well, it's, you know, maybe I recommend to people from summer through fall, just remember Jaleel McLaughlin or remember Michael Wilson or remember somebody that is a, that doesn't have value, but I know that I can be the authority on that, on that. And then, and take my chances that way, because I still know when I go into drafts, people are going to go, people, I know which players people are going to look at and say, I don't trust Michael Wilson because he hasn't played enough and, and he doesn't have high draft capital or I don't trust, uh, you, you know, Anthony Richard, Anthony Richardson, because he looks so bad at Florida even though someone's telling you who who does has studied this in depth that he wasn't inept, he wasn't incompetent, he was actually quite good in the things that you're looking for for the NFL. But unless people, you know, unless people just take your word for it based on experience, or they or they um they understand the subject in enough depth, they usually are just going to trust their own better. They think they have better judgment on that level. So there's a level of confidence in a sense with that area that when you know it that much in depth you can you you can to a degree say i do feel like i know better than folks now where that can haunt you is definitely in other formats like redraft you know outside of rookie drafts redraft i can fall prey to um i can certainly fall prey to being a hedgehog in a sense where I overextend my reach and and do that. And in fact, if there's something that I would change that has changed my mind about the future is I'm actually going to employ your strategy in, in redraft leagues. Um, because while I've had a lot of success in redraft leagues, um, I think where what where I could really blend both approaches, and that's really where I think the that ultimately if you can blend both approaches but know where to blend them that might be worthwhile i would probably be a bit of a hedgehog as a rookie with rookies um you know but in a limited level and then i would be more of a and 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 maybe that's where i would reach a little bit is maybe with some rookies um here and there but for the most part i would just i think i would be i'm more interested in just taking the value of players because what happens for me is that where I mess up when I have when I have um when I don't have the success that I think that I was capable of having is because just as you've stated in your best draft strategy article from August is I is that I'll look at something and go ah, I know better I think I can I think that this guy is better than most and I think people are missing on that. And and really, that one, actually, that's not true. That one, that one I tend to be okay on. I tend to be, where I'm not good is where I look, I, I, I get kind of snobby about players and look down my nose at guys who are perfectly good fantasy players, um, but because they don't fit my aesthetic view of what makes a good running back or a good wide receiver or even a good quarterback 
I just don't even want them because I feel like it's going to play out poorly when it may in dynasty for the reasons I exactly think like long-term they might have one good year and then whatever. But in redraft, I have to learn to go. He's the starter. He's most likely going to play points or points. It doesn't matter. And then I, and if I do that, I think really for me, if I just did that, it would probably make my team that much better because I feel like I have a good eye for identifying situations where people are overlooking the player or overlooking the value of certain players and situations. But um, it's generally established guys. You know, it's usually the people who get upset. This Tom Brady moving to to Tampa Bay, you know, he's not going to be as good. And he looked like he was going down the down the drain, you know, or Peyton Manning or certain things that you just, you could almost say there's there's a model for it or like past history for, for some of these things and you can identify it. But for the whole, yeah, like the thing I really want to change and just experiment with is to is to practice just getting players at a better value that that everyone else is everyone else is picking but at a better value and so yeah i appreciate that you know getting looking at your your piece because that's something that next year i'm excited about doing this week's column is actually going to be tailor-made for you because i'm going to talk about like areas where you do have a genuine advantage where you have a genuine edge like how you can leverage that as safely as possible to maximize your upside and minimize your downside. No, that sounds great. I'm excited to check it out because that's that, that's absolutely it. You know, as as I mentioned, you know, I I feel like it's a unique position, and I think a lot of people overestimate that stuff. And I usually would just write it off, but I realize, like after a while, I mean, after 20 years of doing this, you kind of look it around and you go, okay, let's be honest. You know, this is what's going on. So. Um, and it continues to be working out and I'm getting better at things. Like if you asked me five years ago, you know, I would say, yeah, I think I'm pretty good at running backs. I think I'm better at quarterbacks than people think, but you know, but if I thought I was really good at identifying rookie wide receivers, I would have, I, I would have been, I would have had a lot more variance. Whereas in the past three to four years, I would look at it and go, um, yeah, I feel pretty good about that now too. Like I feel like that that's a that's a thing. But at the same time, you know, you uh yeah, it's a it's just one of those things where I think being able to have knowing where you should be a generalist and where you should be a specialist is is worthwhile. And I and I think that for most people I would agree that being a generalist would probably be the best course unless you have football experience or you're doing something that is occupying eight to 12 hours of your day committed to, to, to that one thing. If you're not, if yeah. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, that. yeah, my, uh, you know, my, uh, draft off ADP article, I'm, I'm arguing if you don't have an edge, I think it's better to have, to be a hedgehog. You know, I think find one thing that, you know, is good and then just flog that horse to death. Yeah. yeah, I, it's really hard for me to say, to make normative statements like you should, or you ought to, or it really, like, as I look at it more and more, like both are equally valid approaches. Both are probably going to be equally successful. Um, it's about finding what works for you. And also it's about most importantly, I think finding what's fun for you. True. And if you have any, and I think about it this way too, you're in a home league, 
you probably if you if you know running backs better than most people in your league, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter whether you know running backs better than most people on the planet. You know, that's a there's a you got to know your setting and know what you do well and and go from that go from that standpoint. So, what about you? What's something that, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, something to do with the NFL or players or teams or fantasy, what's something that's changing your mind that you've you know, that you've observed after September? Uh, yeah, so I'm, I try to be as fluid as possible. Like, I don't really have strong opinions on, like, players or teams or, you know, I watch and I, I appreciate and, um, like, I have thoughts on stuff. Um, but by and large, I'm just trying to react to the reactions of people who I think are smarter and better at this than me. Um, so, like, in my dynasty rankings, um, I react very strongly when Bob Henry releases his rest of season rankings because um, Bob's better at this than I am. Bob's better at this than I would say anyone is. I think he's the best in the industry at yeah. um, reacting to the reality on the ground and and projecting the reality going forward. Um, so, like, yeah, I've I've had a lot of like my opinion on Nico Collins. I was always probably higher than consensus on Nico Collins. Um, but he went from a guy who I felt was like buried on the back half of my dynasty rosters to a guy where now I'm like, I mean, realistically, is there a path to him becoming like a top 10 NFL wide receiver? Not necessarily from a from a production standpoint, even because um, I mean, to this point, he has been. I think he's the number seven fantasy receiver, but even from just like a perceptions of talent standpoint. Um, and I think with young guys like Collins, you have to be open to the idea that they improve. Uh, I think a lot of people get in trouble because they assume that improvement is birthright. Um, like somebody asked me recently, what whatever happened to Jeremy Shockey? Jeremy Shockey never lived up to his promise. And the reality is that Jeremy Shockey was as good in year six as he was in year one. Like he made, I think like five Pro Bowls in his career. Um, I track fantasy value and, and from 1985 to 2019, which is what my data set covers. He was like the number 12 fantasy tight end. Um, he had success on multiple teams. He had like an 11 year career. Jeremy Shockey was a great player. The problem was, and the reason why he was a disappointment is that he wasn't a better player in year six than he was in year one. And people assume that, that how you are in the beginning is a prelude of things to come. But some players just arrive more fully formed than others. And so that's a very common mistake is people assume that improvement is birthright. Or another guy where we, we had this was Mike Wallace, the receiver for the Pittsburgh Steelers, who was a very good deep threat um, and, and a, a great piece of that offense. He, was a, a, he, he put a lot of stress on defenses and he made the team better. And people saw that from day one, basically. He stepped on the field and that's who he was. And then from there, they projected, okay, and now he's going to get better at the underneath stuff. And now he's going to start drawing more target volume. And now he's going to gain all of these skills that he doesn't have yet. And he didn't. He just stayed what he was for the rest of his career. And that was fine because what he was was good. Um, but people get in trouble when they assume that improvement is it's birthright. A, it's a very common issue with Devi leagues where you have college, you know, four and five star recruits who have, you know, they, their bodies are what they're going to be and their athletic ability is what it's going to be. And, and they may end up being NFL players, 
NFL caliber players, and that's great. They're they are really good, and they deserve those stars. But then there's the Carson Wentz, Aaron Rodgers, Josh Allen's who were underweight, not very tall, didn't really even have the the body types to play quarterback, or Saquon Barkley who was like 185 and. If you looked at his metrics, it would have been nothing near what he did at the combine and what he looks like today. Um, so, you know, certainly that's a perfect example of that. Uh, yeah, it, it's people assume that that careers are orderly and they're just not. Um, and there's a big advantage. And, and, and the flip side to that is that I think it's also easy to fall into a trap where you assume that improvement is impossible. And Nico Collins, the last couple of years has been, um, you know, he's lived up to his billing in the draft. He was kind of a mid round receiver and he's kind of performed like a solid mid round receiver. He, he, he was a great pick for the pick based just on what he showed the last two years. And it's very easy to fall into a trap of thinking that, oh, we've got two years of film on him. What he is, is what he is. Um, and not allowing for that room for him to grow from like a quality piece of an NFL passing game to a true genuine number one receiver. Um, so I don't know if he's going to make that leap, but I'm very open to the possibility that what we're seeing from Nico Collins and Tank Dell and CJ Stroud and the entire Houston Texans passing game is in fact that leap that these players are in fact cementing themselves as, um, as the talents that their production would suggest that they are. Um, and I'm not necessarily forecasting improvement but of course they don't need to improve over what they've already showed if they can just maintain what they've already showed and I know that that's the challenge especially for rookie quarterbacks is you know the first four games of their career are kind of on easy mode and then the defense starts counter punching um but yeah that's one I've changed my mind on where where I kind of liked Nico Collins and I was open to the possibility that he would become pretty good um and now I'm kind of I'm kind of asking like are, are is that possibility hitting are we getting to that point um can we can i comment on him real quick before you go to the yeah, next go one because please do, please do. because i i've i'm kind of keeping an eye on him as well and after studying his tape a couple weeks ago and then seeing the past few game past couple games i'm what i'm watching for right now is is there a difference not so much about his skill set but is there a difference with the game plan versus teams that play man coverage a lot more or zone coverage a lot more? And what I'm what I'm hoping I kind of have this theory that I'm waiting to see if, whether it's confirmed or not is this year is I, I wonder if Nico Collins is going to be the better guy against zone coverage because of a lot of the inside breaking routes that they ask him to run. Not so much of his skill set and what he can or can't do, because I've seen him at college win one-on-one -on -one and do a lot of things with positioning that's very adept to, that, would, that often translates to the NFL game. If you have a quarterback who trusts you enough to make those types of throws, and I would say C.J. Stroud being a rookie, probably they're asking him to, you know, the, usually they ask guys to be a little bit um, more cautious and just take the easy, you know, make sure you're, you're seeing the field right and making the easier plays. So I'm wondering if, but at the same time, Tank Dell is more of a man-to-man -man guy in terms of his speed and quickness. Certainly you get him open in zones and he can destroy you with what he can do in the open field. But 
I'm wondering if we're going to see more Tank Dell success against teams that play predominantly man versus Nico Collins, who he may has more success playing predominantly zone. And if that's the case, Collins is still going to be the leading receiver because more teams play zone than man um, nowadays. But I'm I'm that's something I'm waiting to see because I think that might tell us a lot um, for next year as well. Even though he may that that relationship may grow and develop to the point that it won't matter. It's funny too because um, Harmon, when he's charted Collins through his first two years. Um, has found that he's actually his strength has actually been beating man and especially press coverage and that he beats press at a rate that's like really on par with with like some of like the best names in the league um and he's he's strong against man and he's just been wildly underwhelming against zone uh so if you're right on that and that nico collins is kind of adding that tool to his toolkit and he's becoming more of a zone beater then i think that could potentially be one of those uh uh-oh happy learned how to putt situations And it's and it's and that's what's fascinating because I know Matt's talked about that, but from what I've been watching this year, they the where he's had his biggest games, he's faced um, that may qualify as man to man. But what's happening is they're playing an outside shade where they're allowing everything inside. So for me, that's more technically a, a zone look, and it, and it just depends. And I'm sure Matt probably understands the differences of some of those if they're playing a cover three and it converts to man you know you could say that that's man but if you're just playing in you know if you're playing outside and and they're running a dig the entire time that's a to me that's more of like yeah that man may be following you but in theory he's not cover he's not solely responsible for you he knows that there's a man over the top or in the middle so it's kind of like that may be the that may be the tough part about charting man man or zone i'd have to ask matt probably you know how he goes about doing that just to get a a difference but it's going to be it is it's going to be interesting to see where that goes so who's your other what's your other um thought in terms of you know things that have changed your mind or you know just this topic in general oh the biggest surprise for me has definitely been um the arizona cardinals uh where like i thought that offense was going to be unwatchable like like New York Giants, New York Jets level bad. Um, Like normally to be that bad on offense, you have to play in New Jersey. Um, But, and, and, and Josh Dobbs, you know, like he's a guy who's just been in the league forever and hasn't done anything. And the NFL so rarely misses on guys like that, uh, where if, if you've been in the league if you last in the league that long and you're not getting a shot, usually there's a reason. Like, usually there's a reason you're lasting in the league. The team likes you. The team trusts you. They feel comfortable with you. But but typically it means something like the upside isn't there. And we haven't seen a ton of upside from Arizona's offense, but I would argue that just looking like a competent professional NFL offense has been massive upside over where I expected them to be. And, and like, people are surprised that Marquise Brown is doing, like, what Marquise Brown always does. Because, like, I don't know if people think he's bad. or it, You know how it is. Where in the NFL, you're either a superstar or you're a scrub. Right. And Marquise Brown is not a superstar, so therefore he's a scrub. But, like, he's, all, he's doing what he always does. He's a, he's a competent wide receiver. He's going to get open. He's going he's gonna to do his thing. Um, he's not going to, like, make the highlight ESPN top 10 countdown. He's not going to, like, carry an offense on his shoulders like Devontae Adams might. 
Um, but but like he's gonna do his thing, and and it's always funny to me. Like I think Marquise Brown might be like the most fun guy in the league to hang out with, just based on how excited every player he's ever played with is when he's on the team. <laughs> like when when Arizona traded that ransom for Marquise Brown. Um, like Kyler Murray was ecstatic and Lamar Jackson was just completely despondent, like completely out of proportion to what you would expect based on his production on the field. Right. And so I have to think like, maybe this dude is just like the world's all time greatest hang. Um, <laughs> That's a good point. You know, but, I mean, yeah, the, the Cardinals, I, I, and they went against, they went against Dallas and San Francisco and I'm getting killed in my dynasty league. Cause I have Dallas and San Francisco as my two defenses. And I keep thinking like, the Cardinals are a mirage. Like, surely they're going to get steamrolled against a good defense. And I don't think they've had a turnover yet. I think they're among the, the lowest in the league at taking sacks. Like, they just take no negative plays. The, the, the positive plays aren't quite as there and ex explosive as you get with, like, a Miami that makes them such a truly dangerous offense. But if you can just, like, not do bad things when you have the football – that's a good thing. And, and so I've been floored by the Cardinals and I was not expecting that at all. From them. Yeah. Um, Brandon Angelo and I were discussing this last night on, on our um, um, going deep podcast about Josh Dobbs. And, you know, it fit two themes that I'll retouch here. One is that um, before Josh Dobbs got traded, we were talking about the Cardinals might play better with Colt McCoy than they will with Kyler Murray. And the reason being is that we know Kyler Murray is a tremendous athletic talent and a tremendous throwing talent, but he's also um, has not fixed his pocket um, management. And when you create, when you're as leaning on being as creative as he does is with all the stop start movements and trying to buy time, there's too many plays in his resume where he's, you know, taking six, eight, 10 seconds to to make throws and literally outrunning his protection and forcing his receivers to work so much harder than they need to and then on top of that you know you look at some of these things may seem anecdotal but you look at him in practice and some of the hard knock stuff trying to correct deandre hopkins on a route where hopkins knew better but he's like he's like griping and grousing to his players and and kind of bearing them in practice and half the time you know well not half the time but with some of the players that he's dealing with they know more about route running than he does and and then you got the whole issue about being willing to work and whether that's true or not you just add that layer to some of the other things you see and it's like this is this is someone who's leaned too much on his athletic ability and so we thought maybe Colt McCoy ends up actually helping this team be better just because he's going to play within the system to a point where Murray has kind of butted heads against that to an extreme level. And so we know that Kyler Murray is inherently a better fantasy quarterback than Colt McCoy ever could be maybe long-term, but is he a better NFL quarterback for a team's success? And that was the question we kind of raised. So then Dobbs gets traded. And we were talking about Dobbs and just how good he looked because, yeah, he minimizes mistakes. He doesn't work. When he when something doesn't come open, he doesn't try to buy time to the point that he risks a sack or a turnover or gets his receivers frustrated. He just 
he just runs. You know, he gets he he takes what's there, and he is involving players well, and he's doing the little things. And as a result of that, we're thinking, yeah, we don't know when Kyler Murray's going to come back. That was what the talk was this week, but from the coaching staff, you know, he's working out, he's rehabbing. We're happy for him, but you know, our thought is. We won't be surprised at all if they trade, try to trade Kyler Murray by season's end um, and they just stick with Dobbs all year um, other than maybe a showcase game or two to try and, you know, if they can try and get rid of him beforehand if, the, if, if he's even ready to play at that point. Um, but it's but it's one of those things that with, when it comes to Dobbs, it also fit another point that I think is important about what we look at here is that they do teams really do get it wrong when it comes to the draft capital, but I've always argued that it's also it's reinforced by you know factors that where those factors that they reinforce can can also are biases that can be exploited. And an example of that would be a guy like Dobbs, who at Tennessee he was basically a big arm guy who could run, and they they featured him in that way. Now. He was always known as being unbelievably in book smart. I mean, I used to, I used to make the joke that with the, Josh Dobbs coming out, that he was he was going to be living proof that our uh, that a rocket scientist wasn't necessarily going to make a good quarterback, and that we could get rid of this whole idea that book smarts is so important to being a strong quarterback. I mean, you've got Brett Favre you know, on one extreme and you've got Josh Dobbs on the other in terms of what you would think about in terms of book smarts or, or the, the way people envision a certain type of intelligence that they think is going to work for quarterbacking or, you know, or Dan Marino, who, you know, also didn't score very well on the wonder lick or different things that would show a, a level of book smarts. But when we think about it, he's been on, He's he's been he didn't play he didn't he wasn't on a team officially in 2019 he wasn't officially on a team in 2021 though he was he played with the Browns for a little while in 2021 he was with Pittsburgh for two years then he went to Cleveland um, and then he had one he had really some decent preseason outings in Cleveland they basically got rid of him he wound up in Tennessee he had a he had some a decent outing or two in Tennessee where at least on film showed some development and promise. Cleveland took him back and now they've traded him. And when you look back right now at how Josh Dobbs is playing, he's not a world beater in fantasy, but he's supporting enough to keep the offense going and helping out other players. You can look at that and go, hmm, did Pittsburgh miss out with what they have right now? Cleveland. Did they miss out? Did they have to spend all that money? Atlanta. Yeah, Atlanta. You know, what about Tennessee? You know, they have a log jam of guys that are unproven, but Josh Dubs, you know, didn't look so bad. So, you know, it's one of those scenarios where it bends the argument of saying maybe quarterbacks need more time away from the field and, or, and some intermittent starting or intermittent playing time give them a quarter here and there, give them a, start off with a series, maybe go to two to three series, then give them a quarter, maybe start letting them play a half, 
you know, start them having or let them play a full game. And if it gets bad, you bench them at the at, at halftime. Tell them that if it gets close, you're going to give them another opportunity to come in. The whole Schottenheimer Drew Brees thing that Brees talked about, how it helped him more than anything um, to develop. But I mean, you look at all these MVPs in the league, Steve that we've had: Steve McNair, Rich Gannon, um, Aaron Rodgers, Kurt Warner, Brett Favre, um, Tom Brady. They all, Patrick Mahomes, they all sat for some period of time. Some of them got intermittent playing time too. They, you know, you would argue that Mahomes got intermittent playing time because he didn't start till week 17. He basically told um, Andy Reid, I didn't, um, I don't understand progression reads. That We didn't do that at Texas Tech. So I got to learn that. So they spent the year letting him learn that behind Alex Smith, who, Honestly, quarterback coaches have said, one quarterback coach told me, Alex Smith is the perfect, the legitimate example of like when coaches in theory talk about reading progressions, the the joke is that if you're reading progressions at a highest level, the, the correct answer to every play is a check down. Um, you know, and that, so if there was anybody better about reading progressions, even if he wasn't great at, you know, particularly great at knowing when maybe to um, be more practical than theoretical, it would have been Alex Smith. Um, so the, Mahomes gained a lot, had one game against Denver, and then had a whole year or a whole off season to prepare again before he got on the field. And so when you look at these scenarios like that, I just wish NFL owners would stop acting like they know better because I think if they if they actually allowed their coaches and GMs to do their job, I think we would not be seeing players start right away as often as they are. I think Ben Roethlisberger <clears throat> kind of screwed things up and people forget that the Pittsburgh Steelers are one of the better organizations in football with a reasonable owner who tends to be hands-off until he's asked to be hands-on. Um, and that's something that most of these teams don't get. So Joshua Dobbs is a, I think that's a, that's a fun one. And I, I recommended him, I recommended him this week as a, an example of a player that if you're like two and two, one and three, own oh four, and you know, you're not in the top 30% of your, your league in scoring with your starting lineups. And it doesn't have to do with you making some, taking some risks or making some boneheaded decisions that you know are easily correctable. And you, you know, your team sucks. Like if you know your team sucks, even if you're two and two and you just had the luck of the draw with a team that just sucked harder than the two wins that you had, what are you going to do? Like, you know, maybe, maybe it's time to take some assets and trade them away and take some chances and just go, it's not going to be good that I have Patrick Mahomes or Lamar Jackson or Jalen Hurts if the rest of my team sucks. Maybe it's better that I trade some of these guys and instead of trying to get a quarterback back from people, maybe I pick up a Joshua, you know, a Joshua Dobbs or Jordan Love. You know, people probably picked up Love because he's in the top 12, but you can you might be able to pick up some guys like that or get them very cheap as an add-on in trades because people are more than willing to quote unquote sell them high if they're going to get you know, the stud quarterback in return, or they have um, Trevor Lawrence or Joe Burrow on their bench and they're going, it's going to be a matter of time that these guys are going to 
you know, are going to are going to produce better numbers. And Dobbs to me is a perfect example of something that I think you probably get essentially for free or at a low cost, and and just ride him for a little bit while you try to build um, a surplus elsewhere, you know, or try to build try to get something elsewhere. Like maybe you have no running backs and then you can get at least a running back. Maybe you can get a running back two plus a, a wide receiver two, you know, or a wide receiver three for, you know, for your top quarterback. And you can pick up dubs off the waiver wire and say, I know it's the point differential may not work out, but it's giving me something to build on where I have more players to distribute across my lineup who might hit in a given week and I can continue to start building, you know, things like reserves at running back, just picking up as many starter caliber talents who are sitting behind um, a high end producer on a team with a good offensive line, like an Elijah Mitchell or, you know, anybody really almost anybody from the Eagles or, you know, the dolphins backfields or things like that and say, you know, if an injury hits, I might be in good shape here. Or, and at the same time, maybe pick up guys like a Ronnie Rivers or a, a Jaleel McLaughlin who aren't going to give you a lot of volume. And, you know, volume's king with running backs. But at the same time, you're not going to get, you're not going to find anybody off the waiver wire who's getting volume right now. Um, unless it's, the, unless you're, you know, you're, you're participating in the bidding war next week when somebody emerges that nobody anticipated. So why not get guys who, at least while you're trying to find that guy and land him and preemptively add him, you take someone who's going to give you at least a shot at a big play, you know, who's going to get, they may not have high volume, but they're going to have a potential of high variance in terms of, you know, production. Um, even Latavius Murray, who may not be the fastest guy anymore, still has, you know, you still see him breaking big plays at his age and getting just enough opportunities that you just go, just give me something like that to tide me over until maybe I let, maybe Rico Dowdle takes over for, for Tony Pollard and you've had him on your roster and now suddenly he's giving you running back one looks and, and you're, you know, you might be in the thick of it because you're building that way. So fun Latavius Murray stat since you dropped his name. Yeah. I I think that there are five running backs in history who've scored two rushing touchdowns of at least 90 yards. And I think it's like Tony Dorsett, Derrick Henry, uh, Bo Jackson, uh, Amon Green, and Latavius Murray, wow. uh, which it's very like he's very like the odd man out. But yeah, people don't think about him when they think about like the big play threats in history, but like he does have a pair of 90 plus. Um, yeah. So anyway, my advice for bad teams would be pretty much the opposite of what yours just was. Uh, <laughs> oh, naturally. <laughs> naturally. Um, I always say that, that most of the, most of the fixes I see from people are like, should I trade my one difference maker for like two or three medium talented players? And my response is always like, Fantasy football leagues are typically not won by the team with the strongest weaknesses. They're typically won by the team with the strongest strengths. Right. Um, like, it's a lot easier. Like, if you have a guy who's a true, genuine difference maker, if you have Christian McCaffrey and then, like, two complete and total scrubs um, at or, 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 or a complete and total scrub at your other running back spot, it's very easy to improve from terrible. 
Like you don't need, it doesn't take much. Like a, G- a Jaleel McLaughlin might be an upgrade over a complete and total scrub. But if you trade McCaffrey for like two solid running backs instead, it's very hard to improve from that because you're not going to get like a, a great running back off of waivers. Right. Um, so I tend to I tend to advise people to go more with the studs and duds um, and hope hope that you can find something to replace the duds. But in the meantime, like it it's really hard to look at a starting lineup and you have like who knows in in the lineup and you're like this guy's awful. I'm I'm at a terrible disadvantage, but ultimately that doesn't really matter. If you've got like two or three really good players, that's all you need. They can carry you. Um, And then the other thing I think people do when they start slow is they trade their underperforming players to try and acquire some overperforming players, which again, I think is the exact opposite move that you should be doing. I write every year, I just, um, it just published today, but I write every year. If you look at the correlation between linear correlation, there's my hammer. If you look at the correlation between preseason ADP and performance in week five plus, and the correlation between performance in the first four weeks and performance in week five plus, they're equal. Every single year, the first four weeks of the season tell us only as much as preseason ADP told us. So if you had a guy who was drafted high and has been a massive disappointment through four weeks, odds are he's gonna perform closer to that that whole high draft status, you know? Uh, so what you should be doing is if you had some late round picks who hit, and now they're hot commodities, you should be trading those for other people's early round picks who, who have just been total disappointments and they're trying to get rid of. It, 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 it's very counterintuitive, but if you want to give yourself the best chance in the long term, make your roster look more underperforming in the short term and then just hope for regression. Now, I didn't describe what I was talking about probably well enough because one of the things that I am hitting on is when I give people examples of players to target, they're underperformers at ADP. Um, yeah, you know they're they're the DeAndre Hopkins or the Michael Thomases or you know or or the the players. And my first <laughs> thought is always like, yeah, if someone's going to give you a Trevor Lance or a Joe Burrow, or you ask for that right away. But if you can't get that, and and I also am not a believer in like if you have Christian McCaffrey, why are you going to get two backs? Like now, if you want to say, I don't, I have backs that can tide me over but i know that i'm not there's nobody on the waiver wire for me to get a quarterback or nobody on the waiver wire to get a receiver and i know that i can get two underperforming high adp players in exchange for that at different positions and i have depth at this one position maybe i would look into that you know but it's but it's one of those deals that yeah it's not about to, to me, it's total. It's always been about if you have a guy that nobody knew about and you can sell him high, that's probably a good, better idea than getting rid of a guy at his low point, especially relative to ADP. No, so I'm I'm totally there with you on that end of it. And, and the thing to remember too is if you start bad, um, well, first of all, four weeks is just a tiny sample in yep. fantasy football. Like if you're one in three. It doesn't matter. You need to get to probably seven and seven to make the playoffs, maybe eight and six. That's not a very tough lift, you know, going. It it, it seems like it's hard going um, like six and four the rest of the way or, or seven and um, three. Um, but just given the week to week variance, 
teams go on runs. That's not a surprising run at all. Um, so you should be worried that the, 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 the cure is worse than the disease. Yeah. You don't want to break your team trying to fix it. Um, so recognize that, that first of all, it sucks to be down these games, but it's not the death knell that you necessarily think it is. Understand that the range of outcomes is wider than you think. Um, and then also, if you truly have a bad team, if you're quite confident that your team is in the bottom, the path out is not trying to make it look better on paper. The path out is making it look worse on paper and hoping you catch some negative variants. And it's scary because, you know, like a lot of times it's not going to work. But if you're down bad, staying the course, you know, you're going to lose. Like, what does it matter if you finish? Like, what's the difference between finishing five and nine versus three and 11, yeah. right? Who cares if you make your team worse? If you need something to happen, you got to embrace that variance. Um, and and buying low on underperforming disappointments, you know, maybe that it's a sign of things to come and, and you just made your team truly atrocious, but your that's, only hope up is, is, is some luck. So you got to put yourself in a position where you can get it. That's the exact point I made at the beginning of the article is like, you've got nothing to lose at this point. So, you know, but if you just try, and the, the whole thing was, if you try to cosmetically make it, you're just trying to front that your team's good. You're just, you're not going anywhere. You're just sitting, living a life of quiet desperation in a sense right there, hoping that something's going to change when really you, if you're going to make a real change, get proven good players who just aren't playing well right now. Like that's what I'd Or even guys on. who are who are playing well but are in a terrible situation, like Garrett Wilson. Everybody thinks Garrett Wilson is dust because Zach Wilson is horrible. Um, but you know, he's been a huge disappointment. You can probably get him way cheaper than he was yeah. two months ago. I would rather bet on like, hey, maybe Garrett Wilson is good and will produce, or even like there's so many backdoor covers with that. Like, what if the Jets have a Joshua Dobbs sitting on their roster somewhere, or they get one, or or the quarterback changes. Like, who would have thought that Mike White was the key to unlocking Garrett Wilson's potential last year, and yet he was. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's the great thing about disappointing players who have disappointed so far is there's really a lot of outs. No, no, that's for sure. Well, oh, as always, this is a, a fantastic conversation. We certainly enjoy getting to be able to talk about things either from the opposite opposing point of view or come or finding ourselves arriving at the same point from opposite points of view. Um, you know, either way we, you know, we hope that you enjoy the conversation. Um, you know, certainly we love the feedback that you give and you can find Adam Harstead at Adam Harstead on Twitter X, you know, you can find me at Matt Waldman and, uh, you know, check out Adam's article on foxes and hedgehogs over football guys, dynasty and theory. You can also check out what he's done recently, you know, with, you know, his regression alert work, rent a kicker, um, odds and ends, you know, you know, you just go, just go and type his name in the search bar at football guys. You'll find everything, um, that's valuable there that he's doing. So, uh, thanks again. And we'll talk to you next week.